0: We're to walk with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We all have in our heart a desire to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of our own opinions, but that's not the call.
1: Welcome to Simple Grace Radio, where we share God's glorious grace for a transformed life. I'm your host, Adrian Crum. In a few moments, Pastor Dale Van Dyke will open up a next section in the book of Ephesians. We're in a series called What It Means to Be a Christian. And we come to Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. Pastor Dale's going to answer the question, what does a church worthy of the gospel look like? What do you look for when you search for a church? Oftentimes we think about music style or what kind of preaching a church has, or programs that will be beneficial for our families. But the church that Paul describes in Ephesians is one that is united and loving. I love how Shay Lynn puts it, Our union with Christ means we have a spiritual communion with one another that transcends all natural earthly relationships. Division in the church is a denial of this profound reality. So as we think about what a church worthy of the gospel is, It's all about a church that's connected and united to Jesus, who has purchased us, and we have one connection to him, uh, one, one body under him, because we only have one Savior. Since there's only one Christ, there should be also one united body of Jesus. And I'm really excited about this broadcast. I want you to benefit from this. If you are looking for a church and you want to join a biblical gospel-believing church, reach out to us, send us an email at radio at harvestopc.org, and we'd love to connect you with a church, a Bible-believing evangelical church. If you're listening far from where we are, Harvest here in Wyoming, Michigan, we'd love to connect you with another Bible-believing and evangelical church in your area. And now let's dig into a church worthy of the gospel from Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6.
0: If I asked you uh, to describe this morning your, I, your vision of the ideal church, how would you describe it? Uh, some of you might use words like small, intimate, right, where everybody knows everybody else. Others might use words like lively or relevant, great music, solid doctrine, socially active, relevant teaching. Uh, there's all sorts of different phrases that people might use. I would suggest that if you would boil down Paul's letters and um, ask Paul, what words, Paul, would you use to define and describe your ideal church? The words that Paul would use would be loving and unified. Loving and unified. Uh, You won't find Paul talking much at all about uh, the size of a church. You won't find him talking about music style or ministry programs. None of those things are things that ultimately matter. Uh, Paul does care about true doctrine. He cares about that passionately. Uh, He warns in his letters about false teachers. And uh, he was even willing to publicly rebuke Peter, if you remember, because Peter was getting the gospel wrong. So Paul cares passionately about True doctrine, but the reason Paul cares about true doctrine is because true doctrine is the foundation for the real church. Uh, Doctrine doesn't exist for its own sake or to its own ends. Doctrine is the foundation that Jesus Christ has laid through the apostles and upon which Jesus Christ is building His church. And the words that Paul would use to describe that church founded on true doctrine, on on the true gospel, the words Paul would use is loving and unified. Well, if that's the case, then the church is in trouble. Uh, because we live in an increasingly uh, angry, divided, disunited culture, and those traits are increasingly being manifested in the church. Uh, The past uh, years, we've seen tragic failures of love and unity in the church as believers have argued and fought and split over uh, racial issues and gender issues and COVID issues and other issues. There's been an increase Of anger in the church. I was talking with a pastor, a friend of mine recently, and we were commenting together that that we see more anger now in the church than we used to see. We experience more anger than we used to experience. Uh, uh, Anger has become a sort of a defining part. I was talking with a a couple when we were in uh, Naples, and there was a lovely couple there from a church in Canada, Solid Reformed Church, and that church is being ripped apart uh, over uh, COVID issues. Lots of anger. I'm give you an example. Shay Lynn, young, reformed black hip-hop artist, wrote an excellent book last year entitled uh, The New Reformation, Finding Hope in the Fight for Ethnic Unity. It's, a, it's an excellent little book. I highly recommend it to you. Uh, he argues in that book that the... Uh, The doctrine of justification is the key for unity in the church. I think that's exactly right. The the doctrine of justification that teaches us that we are made right with God by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, We are all sinners and we're all saved the same way by sheer mercy and sheer grace. That's the the essential doctrine for unity in the church. But But he also comments in that book how poorly the church is going about discussing this specific issue. He says, there are many conversations surrounding ethnicity in the church today. I see a lot of anger. I see a lot of sarcasm. I see a lot of unforgiveness and mockery. What I don't see is a lot of humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. And unfortunately, that's also exactly right. And the same could be said for any number of issues that the church is debating today. And friends, the effect of that is obviously disunity. And we're seeing that in the church. Churches dividing from one another. uh, Relationships in the church disintegrating as brothers and sisters defriend one another, withdraw from one another, distrust one another. The church today is struggling to live up to and into God's vision for His church. We're not doing well. And so this is a word that we need to hear. This is a truth that we need to grasp. I hope you have a sense that this is really, really important. And if you don't have that sense now, you'll, you'll understand that by the end of the message. God calls us, you see, to be a church that is worthy of the gospel. If you're taking notes this morning, our three points will be, first, the calling of worthy church, and then the character of a worthy church, and finally, the convictions of a worthy church. The calling, the character, and the convictions of a worthy church. Paul begins, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul loves to talk about the call of God. It is how he understands the church. The call of God, you see, is the saving purpose of God that defines the church, determines its identity and its destiny. If you think about the church, what Paul wants you to think about is the call of God that, that uh, is behind the church, the reason the church exists and the things that define the church. So he'll say in Romans 1.6 that we have been called to belong to Jesus. In Romans 1.7, called to be saints. Ephesians 4.4, called to one hope. God's sovereign call, His effectual call where He uh, accomplishes what He desires, that is what defines who we are. Uh, that's what determines our future. A great example would be the Old Testament church. If you think of uh, Old Testament Israel, when they come out of Egypt, uh, they were, man, they were, well, like most other nations of their day, there was nothing unique about them except their impoverished state. They're slaves. But there's nothing unique about them. They're, they're a fundamentally flawed, wicked people. The only thing that makes them unique is this one thing, They were the recipients of God's call. That's it. That's what makes them different. They had been chosen by God, called to be His saints, called to be His holy people. They had been given this hope, called to receive the land of promise where God would dwell with them as their God and they would live with Him as their people. That's what defined them. That was their identity. And that's why, you see, God was uniquely upset with Israel because of Israel's sins. You see, God called them to live in a manner worthy of the calling. And so when the Israelites bowed down to the golden calf that they'd made and worshiped with that calf, well, God was incensed, you see, because it was a violation of their calling, when the people of Israel shrank back out of fear, remember the t- they sent the spies and 10 of the spies came back and said, there's no way we're gonna be able to take the land. There's the Anakites, they're, they're huge. We're not able to do this. And then began grumbling, Moses, why did you bring us out in the desert to die? Well, God was, he was very angry with the people, right? And, 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 he, and he sentenced them to 40 years in the wilderness so everyone of that generation, 20 and older, would die in the wilderness. They wouldn't receive the promise. Why was God so upset? I mean, you could look at it from a human perspective and say, well, I mean, the cities really are fortified. And the, the sons of Anak, they're monstrous war machines. We don't have anything like that. It's a very reasonable conversation that you can imagine taking place in the camps of Israel. And yet God is angry with them. Why? Because you see, their identity and their destiny isn't based on their experience or their insights. It's based on God's call. He's the God that had just led them out of Egypt, the the mightiest nation in the world, by his own power. They didn't do anything. And that God who'd called them out of Egypt had promised to bring them into the, into the land of Canaan by that same power. And so you see, to shrink back in fear is to refuse to trust God. It's to refuse to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so when we think about uh, being a church, faithful church, the question we have to ask is what does it mean for us to live in light of the calling that we've received from our God? Paul says in First Thessalonians 2 verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so as we begin this conversation, uh, we have to just have in our mind this, this incredible reality that exists, the call, the purpose of God and the reality of God Himself. And, and those that reality is supposed to be the supreme thing that, that drives the way that we think and the way that we act, the things that we pursue. Because we're called to live lives worthy of God. It's an incredible statement. Worthy of the God who called us into His own kingdom and glory. Well, what would that look like? What would it look like if the reality of God and the reality of His kingdom and the reality of His glory permeated our minds and hearts what would we how would we live well paul tells us the character of a worthy church secondly he says we're to walk with all humility and gentleness and with patience bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace we all have in our heart a desire to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of our own opinions but that's not the call eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When when Paul thinks about a church that's walking worthy of God and worthy of this glorious calling they've received in God, what he sees is a church that's full of humility and full of gentleness and full of patience and bearing with one another as they eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you would ask yourself, what would it look like to, to be a married couple that lives worthy of the vows we made? Well, you would say something very similar. This couple that, that is striving to live in, in a manner worthy of what God has called marriage to be and, and worthy of the vows that they've taken, that, that would be a couple that is embracing humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another as they are eager to maintain the unity of that marriage in the bonds of peace. Well, it's, it's exactly the same for a church. You can't have a fighting marriage and have a marriage worthy of God, and you can't have a fighting church that's worthy of God. Humility is the posture of a servant. It's to follow Jesus who humbled himself. We are servants, right, of Christ, and we're servants of the mission of Christ. That's what it means to be the church. So we live with this sense that there's something bigger and more important and more essential than my personal, political, or social opinions. There's this thing called the mission of Christ. And, I, and I'm called to serve that mission with humility. Gentleness. Gentleness refers to how we speak. It means that we'll resist anger. And when we give way to anger, we repent of it. We ask forgiveness for it. Shay Lin in his book says, Gentleness is restrained rather than explosive. Gentleness resists the temptation to vent, but instead chooses to ask, can we pray? would that be a good thing to introduce to conversations that are hard? Could we just pray? And look to the Lord to help us with this.
1: You're listening to Simple Grace Radio, a broadcast called A Church Worthy of the Gospel. From Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6, Pastor Dale Van Dyke is opening up this passage for us. You can hear more about our work at simplegraceradio.org. Now back to Pastor Dale.
0: Patience and forbearing means that we don't give up on each other. We don't cancel each other. We don't defriend each other. I hear of that happening in the church. I I just can't imagine. How how does that work? Patience and bearing with one another means that we endure even when the conversations are hard and we're not sure how to move forward. It's striving to press through, you see, those layers of misunderstanding as we seek unity of heart even if we are still working towards a unity of mind. But I want you to notice that all of those qualities in verse 2 are to the end of what Paul commands in verse 3. They're all to the end of maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the primary thing that Paul wants us to get this morning. Worthy gospel living is unified living. Listen to what he says in Philippians one twenty-seven, using the same language, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's how he begins. So that I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's the same thought. What does a worthy church look like? What's a worthy life look like? It looks like unity. People with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see, unity matters because the mission matters. And disunity mucks up the mission. We're called to pursue this great mission things, striving side by side for the, for the faith and the sake of the gospel, because we belong to God. You know, as you know, there's a, currently a war going on in Ukraine, and uh, I just wonder, how much time do you suppose the uh, soldiers on the front lines are spending arguing about the things that formerly divided them? I would suggest it'd be uh, none at all. Why not? Well, because the differences are utterly insignificant in, in the face of an overwhelming common objective, So all ethnic, economic, social, personal, and political differences disappear in the face of the need to strive side by side for the freedom of Ukraine. I enjoy reading World War II books and novels, and and that's one of the things that the soldiers would often comment. How all the structural, uh, the social divisions that they experience in their small town or their big city, wherever they lived in the 1940s, all that disappears when you get to the army. And everybody's on the same page and everybody um, is, is working towards the same objective. Well, that's exactly what it should be like in the church. You see, our, our calling in Christ and our calling as the church, it's just vastly more significant and important than uh, our own perspectives and agendas. Not that th- th- those things don't matter. And you, we can have conversations about all that, all those things. But, but we have a calling together, a calling to represent the living God in an evil age and what God is like to a world that has no clue what He's like. And we have a calling to present a gospel of everlasting life to a dying age, where people really are dying eternally without Jesus Christ. You you just don't get higher stakes than the stakes that that we're called to face and, and to deal with. We have a calling to help each other onto eternal glory. And so you see, division and disunity in the church is reprehensible because it hinders those magnificent God-given agendas. And so we have to just take stock sometimes and ask ourselves, what am am I really about? What are the things that really get my attention? What are the things that really um, make me mad? Am I really about the cause of Christ? Do I really... Does it just grieve me when Christ is not being worshiped and adored as he ought to be? Am I just sick about the spiritual need of dying men and and wondering how we're going to reach them? Am am I gripped with a passion to help my brothers and sisters onto glory? Or am I really about other stuff? Remember how Jesus taught us to pray Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are the things that gripped the heart of Christ. I would suggest those are the things that ought to grip the church of Christ. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. You see, and something's wrong when the things that we get most grieved about, most upset about, is not that Jesus isn't receiving the worship he deserves, but the fact that our constitutional rights are being violated, or our vision of social justice isn't being promoted. When that's the thing that really gets me and rips me, I would just suggest we just need a realignment. We need to see things the way Paul sees things. You see, the world, friends, around us, it's it's defined by disunity. And, and oh, and more, right? Distrust, anger, protests. And the church of Jesus Christ ought to be remarkably and conspicuously different. People ought to be able to come in and, and see people who care about all sorts of stuff, but, but are united because they're passionate about this one thing. They're passionate about the cause of Jesus Christ, and, and they're, they have a common mind and heart to live worthy of God, And worthy of the gospel. And so Paul presses this home. The verb form he uses here is very strong. Stott says, it is hardly possible to render exactly the urging contained in the Greek verb form. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant. Involving his will, his sentiment, reason, strength, and total attitude. Be eager, zealous, spare no effort when it comes to the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the church of Jesus Christ is not a nice little something we can get to at some point down the road. Paul, notice, begins his discussion of how the gospel ought to impact and transform our lives with a discussion about the unity of the church. He hates division in the church. Why? Well, because it's contrary to God's purpose, it's contrary to the church's identity, and it's contrary to the passion of our Lord Jesus. And that finally is the conviction of a worthy church. The conviction of a worthy church. Uh, If we're gonna pursue these things, we have to be agreed together about certain fundamental realities and truths. The first being that unity is what God is pursuing. It's God's purpose. What is God about in the gospel? He's not just about saving people. He is about, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.10, bringing all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. What sin did in this world is it just ripped things apart. It alienated man from God. It alienates man from one another. It alienates man from creation. And the history of the human world is a story of all those tears and rips and cracks and breaks. And God in Jesus, Paul says, is about unity bringing it all back together the way it ought to be. All of it under one head, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus came to do. And one of the evidences that we talked about in chapter 2, where Jesus himself, Paul says, verse 14, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. That would be between the Jews and the Gentiles. It's one evidence of Jesus Uh, pursuing unity. So the gospel isn't just about getting people saved. The gospel is about God's grand agenda of one new humanity, one corporate body living in a healed universe, new heaven and a new earth under one head, Jesus Christ. God's purpose is unity. A second conviction is, is that unity defines who we are. Unity belongs to the, the definition of the church. When we profess together the Apostles' Creed, when it comes to the church, right, I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. One. That's what we confess. Well, that's what the church actually is. It is Paul, he just hammers this point home. Uh, if you look at verse 6, one, he says one seven times. So there's one body and one spirit And one hope and one Lord and one faith one baptism one God and Father of all seven times number of perfection I think he's trying to make a point that, in light of all the things that might cause us to divide there is this the the reality of the church is that we are one again you could use a marriage illustration and uh, you could say to a couple that's fighting you know you're violating the fundamental premise and purpose of marriage right? The two shall become one. And what you're doing is destroying, you're not just destroying the marriage, you're violating the fundamental premise and purpose of marriage. The two shall be one. Well, it's the same for the church. We actually are one body. I know there's a thousand denominations. The fact remains, every true Christian is part of the church of Jesus Christ, and we are are one with them. Formed by one spirit, not many spirits. It's one Holy Spirit that builds the church. One hope. We have one conviction together that God is willing to show mercy to sinners like us and the hope being uh, the conviction that God is preparing us for something more, for a better city, a better country, a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. That's our hope. Our fundamental hope isn't found in this world it's found in the world to come. We have one Lord. We have one boss. His name is Jesus, the head of the church, the one who bore our guilt in his own body, the one who gave up his life so that we would be rescued from our deserved death. He purchased our souls with his blood. He loved us to that extent. He's our Lord. What, who would you rather have as your Lord than the one who loved you and gave his life for you? Jesus is the head of the church. We have to do what he says. He says, we have one faith, and there's different wrinkles, right? There's, there's folks who hold to the dispensationalism, there's folks who hold Arminianism, and, and there's lots of different isms that people will claim. But the fact is that if you're a Christian, there's one faith, one gospel, one divinely revealed truth about man's need and about the nature of God and the, the work of God in Jesus Christ to save sinners and make everything new. That's the faith handed down to the saints. We're defined by that one faith, and we're defined by one baptism. We all come into the church the same way, through baptism into Jesus Christ, right, where we, we confess the faith and, and we're, we're baptized into the church in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That means that we share together one Father, right? Right? Through our union with Jesus Christ, we all have the same relationship to God. He's our loving Heavenly Father. And so Shay Lynn says, our union with Christ means that we have a spiritual communion with one another that transcends all natural, earthly relationships. Transcends your Dutchness, right? It transcends everything that you maybe appreciate and value about the way God made you and brought you up, that's great. But the union we have in Jesus Christ transcends it. Division in the church, he says, is a denial of this profound reality.
1: Thanks, Pastor Dale. I appreciate this summary that Dale just unpacked. If God has accomplished all this glorious unity in Christ, disunity is an evil that flies directly in the face of God and the gospel. That's so true. God has accomplished our unification, the binding together of Jew and Gentile together into one body. And when we attack that bond, we're attacking something that Jesus has worked to establish. I think it's frustrating whenever our work gets attacked in different ways. And so we should uh, bear in mind the, the beauty of the unity that Jesus has worked to accomplish and then work toward that unity in his body, the church. You can hear more about our work by going to simplegraceradio.org. If you have a prayer request or something that you'd appreciate we know about the ministry, please send us an email at radio at harvestopc.org. That's radio at harvestopc.org. You can listen to all the catalog of our previous broadcasts going by going to simplegraceradio.org. That's simplegraceradio.org. And share a broadcast with a friend. Send them a link. Uh, You can share any of the sermons and the broadcasts from Galatians and from the book of Job, and even any broadcast here from the book of Ephesians. Come back again next week when we'll be sharing God's glorious grace for a transformed life.